By the way, can I just say one thing before we get going? Yeah, sure. Is uh, this is a landmark day uh, because you primarily know me through the podcast that I do. And we have actually gotten a ton of podcast requests by virtue of the success of the oh, podcast nice. that we do. But you're the first person that's wanted to talk to me. Hey. Uh, so uh, my co-host, who's like the, the famous racing driver, right. um, I'm, I'm that quintessential scene in a movie where somebody will come up to us to like take a photo and it turns out I'm the asshole holding the camera <laughs> and then it's just about him. So uh, so when you wrote and wanted to talk about uh, kind of what we do, I was uh, you, you blew my mind. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here. And by the way, um, I don't know if people know that we talk on Skype when we're doing this, but um, behind you, I see a drum set and a poster of Emerson Fittipaldi. Yes. And behind me, well, you can't really see it, is a keyboard. Oh, nice. And I have no shortage of racing posters all around the office. So uh, we got that in common. This is Content Content a monthly podcast featuring the people behind the content. I'm Ed Marsh. Today's guest is Sean Heckman, the owner of the Media Barons, a media and PR firm in Los Angeles, and also where I know him from as the co-host of the Oh My God Fantastic Dinner with Racers podcast. Sean, how are you today? How's things in LA? Why well, I can't follow that up now. I'm done. I'm out. I'll see you later. Hey, nice talking um, to you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. It is... Um, it is probably early 60s um, right now outside, mm. low 60s, and um, that's cold for how it's been the last couple of months, and you kind of forget how spoiling it is to live out here in L.A. Um, until you have friends from the East Coast, or I had a friend in from Germany over the, over oh, the holidays, nice. and uh, yeah, apparently we're very spoiled and we don't even know it. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's 31 degrees here in New Jersey at 7, 7 oh, p.m., so uh, yeah, you it's a it. little chilly. I literally have not left the house today. Okay, copy. <laughs> so, Sean, why don't you tell us, um, you know, about your world of content and how you got to be, you know, how how your career path started, I guess, in the world of content creation. Sure. Well, we don't have time, uh, <laughs> first of all. Uh, uh, but uh, but anyway, yeah. So just to give a, a quick little background, um, I kind of don't know where I fall on the spectrum of other folks you've had on, but um, I've kind of had a. I don't want to be so selfish as to say that my story is unique in the sense that nobody else is, um, but definitely my path is not one that, that I think too many others have taken. So um, the current business, especially as it, as it stands in the world of content creation, um, um, I think the term we like to use is whores. Um, not sure if you're familiar with that, but basically if somebody wants us to do something for money, we typically do it. Okay. Um, and that's, that's kind of our business model. So, um, um, we, uh, we used to have an old tagline called we make stuff for money <laughs> and, and it kind of worked. And so, uh, but yeah, no, long story short, um, the business as people currently know it is we are, um, I, creative services, kind of the, the best way to describe us. Um, it's a term I tend to not use because what's funny is that we're doing a content creation podcast, but I actually <laughs> tend to avoid the, the term being a content creator uh, because I find it's actually a little too broad for, mm. for my taste. Um, but at the same time, we also don't like calling ourselves a marketing firm because I think that's too broad as well because to me, uh, marketing firms are all about strategy and putting the deck together to, to tell you on how you should consider your your brand alignments and everything. I'm like, no, 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 fuck that. I just want to make cool stuff and, and talk about how this can work as a as a kind of a concerted platform to, to, to move you forward. Um, and so we try not to overthink that kind of thing. But in that sense, if you were going to sort of label us, it would be in content creation or in, in marketing. Um, you know us through motorsports, which is, I would say, where we probably make about just north of a third of our income. Oh, okay. Um, but I would say about a third of our income is through racing, but about 
one half plus of our work is through <laughs> racing as well. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, sort of the, the other 60 plus percent of, of our business comes through uh, a lot of corporate and commercial work that we do. Um, we do occasionally do some television work um, and, and then just random things that, that, that come through. Um, but racing is a really, really big platform for us, uh, not so much from the income standpoint, but from the networking and resource standpoint. So um, I can't play golf and I'm socially awkward. So between those two <laughs> things, I don't really have a way to meet people of... Uh, you know, either business owners or people that come from wealth or whatever it, it it takes to define how to how to earn a client. So racing has kind of become my golf course, for lack of a better expression, okay. because it's a sport that I know very very well. Um, it's a language I can speak, and it's one of very few environments that I'm actually comfortable in. Mm. Um, and so, because of that, uh, the Sean Heckman that people get to know at a racetrack is oftentimes different from a Sean Heckman you might meet elsewhere. Mm. Um, and that Sean Heckman, the racetrack version, is maybe a guy that you have a little more faith in. And so as a result, <laughs> um, that sort of tends to come. So even you know, if I was to look at, at our current list of active clients, um, with the exception of one or two, I could trace almost all of our clients back to motorsports in some form. Either it was a guy who referenced us through motorsport or a guy who used to work in racing and then went on to some other business or somebody who liked the content that we made from some motorsport endeavor and hired us because we were the guys that did that thing. Hmm. Um, you know, motorsports has sort of become a great place to sort of hang our hats. Uh, but as a business model, it is a terrible environment to try and put 100% of your focus into um, <laughs> in terms of the workload versus the money. So when I say it's a third of our income versus is you know one half to two thirds of our work. I'm not lying. It's it's a lot of work for very little pay um, and a lot of nonsense. And and the workload doesn't just come in the sense of sitting down and crafting that release or making that video or whatever it is. It's just all of the phone call and the back and forth and the confirming with this guy and then making the change for this other person and and dropping everything to handle whatever they want tomorrow. I mean, racing is a very dynamic environment, and mm. I would argue more than any other environment we work in. So it's uh, you kind of got to pick your battles. Jesus, there's a but lot, anyway. there's a lot to, lot to decode there. My goodness. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's code for don't work in racing. <laughs> One, because you'll screw up my market, and two, holy crap, it's horrible. Uh, <laughs> but I love it, but and obviously you love it too, and that's obviously why we know each other. But how did you get into racing, by the way? I, you know, <clears throat> my dad was a um, my dad was a mechanic for Toyota oh, cool. and a service manager okay. for Toyota. Um, I at one in, point uh, out in New Jersey. Yeah, in Jersey. Um, okay, for like a dealership then. Yes, exactly. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. yeah, not in Torrance, not out by you. Yeah, he wasn't like, yeah, he was like, about to say, you grew up near me then. Yeah. <laughs> but um, come on. So anyhow, um, we had the Grand Prix of the Meadowlands here back then in the Champ Car, the IndyCar days. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And I was in high school, and I and my dad also went to the Indy 500, I think, Toyota yep. flew him out or something like that, and he went to the oh, that's awesome. 83. Okay. It wasn't the spin and win. It wasn't, um, it wasn't Danny Sullivan in 85. I think it was 84. Oh, so this was back before Toyota was even involved in, yeah. in IndyCar racing. That's yeah, cool. exactly. Okay. Yeah, so he went there, and I don't know. So, you know, my dad was my hero, and of course, you yeah. know, I, somehow I got into the racing, and of course, I managed to go to a couple of practices at the uh, the Meadowlands Indy race because that's all I could afford yeah. in high school. Um, no, that's so cool. And um, I fell in love with it. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just one of those things that I just absolutely fell in love with fast cars. And, uh, you know, Indy car has always been my favorite. I like top-level motorsports. You know, I've done a sure. uh, couple of track days. So, sure. Um, so, yeah, that's um, – it's just, you know, it's, it was just a thing I guess I fell into. I don't, you know, you think about it, it's like I have no idea and I've just got a bunch of shit to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great way to spend your money, that's for sure. Um, yes. But, uh, uh, yeah, racing has kind of developed its own kind of niche place and, and – it's interesting how the sport has changed and, and how the demographics are sort of in a different place. So, um, mm. you know, I, I'm going to 
don't take this the wrong way. I'm going to argue you're over 35. Um, yes. And uh, as am I. And uh, uh, so we grew up in sort of a very different time for, say, IndyCar racing. And, and actually, my teenage years were probably the worst time for IndyCar racing. Uh, oh, but, um, you know, it's it's always had uh, – I, I started my career as actually a driver a long time ago. But, oh. but racing has always had a weird place with me because it's one of those weird – kind of combinations of sport with science with technology with uh a lot of nonsense and in between and obviously every sport has some form of science and physics involved but but um what's always appealed to me is exactly the things you're describing you know it's everybody associates racing with sort of the thrill of the danger of it all but obviously the the technical and the innovation side for me has always been a massive massive part of the interest and so you know i i just think very very passionately about my days growing up in, in California in the 80s and 90s and seeing the new Toyota Eagle that would come out and race mm. in, in some prototype racing or, or you know, the every back in the good days, IndyCar used to have a new car every year. You yes. know, there was a new Radar and a new Lola and, and those were the times that I really look forward to because, you know, oh, this car now has traction control. This car is developing a sequential gearbox. All things that at the time were very, very new. Um, and so I think, you know, it was just at that right age where I could sort of start to understand that stuff, um, add the thrill of danger into the thing and and it became a sport that i became very very passionate about very very early so um so i've always kind of had that yeah i will never forget um at the there's practice for the meadowlands grand prix and john andretti crashed right in front of us and it was this horrific did that a lot horrific crash (laughs) horrific crash and it was just seeing parts flying everywhere and just just hearing the chaos it was it just jolted me that these are people and you yeah. know it makes you realize okay there's a lot more to this sport than cars going around and crashing it's yeah. about the strategy yeah. and the technology and you know the teamwork and that's what i think people don't understand i mean there's this you know especially in IndyCar, a lot of the time it's it's a, 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 a um you know it's a matter of tenths or hundreds of a second between the top drivers and it's amazing yeah. that you can you know can do that consistently and i'm someone who does some sim racing very badly on the computer um, me too so i appreciate you know what they can do so much more uh even sure. after doing a couple of track days and you know to have it's just amazing what they can do oh no i i 100 agree with you on that and and it's, i'm sure you share the same sentiment and i don't want to we don't need to talk about racing for four hours straight, right. but uh, uh, you know one of one of my biggest frustrations when people are like, oh, they just want to see the crashes and stuff like Ugh. that because you know obviously you know you've seen horrible accidents. I have had several friends die in the sport. I mean, mm. it's not it's it's nothing we ever want to go through. Um, but at the same time, you know you, you're seeing more and more an argument that maybe the sport's getting too safe um, and. Uh, it's an interesting time to ask that argument because we still see really, really traumatic accidents, but nothing like we used to. Um, and in a time where the sport is losing its edge in different directions, mm. um, that's always one of the things to to look at. But I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this: I never want to, I never want to see another friend uh, pass away. So I'm very happy to see all the safety innovation that's coming along. So. Yeah, I can imagine. I was just listening to uh, Marshall Pruitt's podcast with Mike Hall, and he was talking about it because they had the the IndyCar windscreen up. Yeah, the new um, windscreen, and right? He's saying, you know, this, yeah, they did a great job. To be safety for the drivers, and I get it. You know, I mean, there's always been an element of risk, and I think that's why people yeah. know Mario Andretti yeah. and AJ Foyt and all the famous people because they lived through a time that was absolutely horrendous yeah. in terms of right. safety. And you know, they, you know, like you, it's unfortunate. Even now, you have friends who are. Uh, you know, who you've you've lost your their lives. Sure. 
So yeah, no, it's just part of it. But anyway, on a all right. Note, Rose, yes. your subject. So how did so. you get here? I mean, I know you know I know from your podcast that you know you were had an interest in ice skating. Um, I think you were Still an do. ice skater at some point. Yes, I saw your. It is literally recently. the Olympics right now. Yes. Uh, if if people are listening, so it's it's uh, I, I actually am going to probably take the Twitter in a day to make some conversions for people on what racing driver is equivalent to what ice skater, so that oh, people can kind of know who to root for. Oh, that's cool. But I'll <laughs> let you finish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you also said that you were you know a driver, which I did not know. So how yep. did you get from from that world into the the content creation world sure uh so i started as a racing driver like a lot of guys uh as a teenager i grew up racing carts um there's actually a lot of drivers that are in the scene today that i grew up racing with mostly california guys um so uh uh you'll know these names not necessarily everybody does but guys like joey hand and aj allmendinger mm-hmm. and and uh scott speed these are all guys who grew up in the northern california karting scene uh that's also where i came from um, and then um, had some success doing that stuff and, and then did some Formula Car racing overseas um, oh. and basically had to stop uh, after an injury. Um, and I had a really, really unfortunate incident, but um, this is a weird way to skew it. Um, the injury basically kept me from ever racing or skating again um, in a competitive way. Oh, wow. Because, uh, um, yeah, actually concurrent with being sort of a teenage racing carter and then formula car driver um i was also skating fairly competitively i don't know if my skating would have ever gone to a crazy good level i don't know if i ever would have you know gone to the olympics or been a world champion but i was definitely doing okay um within my area of ice skating but uh when you have a pretty decent sized injury you stop <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of what happened so um but the the single most fortunate thing that could happen to me was it uh, happened at a young enough age that okay. um, that that i could recover more importantly go to college and so, oh, okay. um, and, and, and kind of not miss the boat on those kind of things because, uh, I was still young enough that, that it really, you know, you hit reset and it didn't, it didn't really affect my timeline at all. So, um, so anyway, so yeah, I went to UCLA, um, when it, by the time I went to UCLA, it was clear my days as a racing driver were over. And mm. so, uh, so at that point I became like anybody else. I was just a fan. And, mm. um, so, you know, went to school for four years and, and kind of racing was always a big part of my life. Even, even when it was just as a fan, I remember in these days, internet wasn't, um, I'm old enough that internet was kind of a thing, kind of not, mm. uh, at UCLA. And so like, uh, getting racing reports online was kind of a weird thing. So I remember going to the newsstand every Thursday to get the latest auto sport and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, I went to UCLA to be a lawyer and, oh, wow. um, that was actually the path that I, that I was planning on going on. And there is no such thing as pre-law, but, uh, political science and, and communication studies were kind of the two things I focused on when I was at UCLA. And, uh, Long story short, you know, I, I did all the steps to, to become a lawyer, took the LSAT and was on my way. Um, but television and video production were always massive interests of mine beyond motorsport. Video production um, has always been a – was always a big interest of mine in high school. I was always that, that dorky kid that was doing the video reports rather than having to do a, uh, you know, live presentation class and stuff like that. We didn't really have an AV club per se, but if there was one, that was kind of me and my – my group, uh, and we were all really cool. Don't get me wrong. And um, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, I was, yeah, in, the, so, I was so, in the marching band. So oh yeah, <laughs> all right. We were both getting laid a lot, and so uh, so yeah. So there was that, and then video production. Uh, so going to one of the reasons I went to UCLA was that there was in the back of my mind I knew that being in Los Angeles might be an interest of mine because oh, okay. production entertainment was you know in in the back of my head. But I'll tell you. When you don't grow up in Los Angeles, and I grew up from in San Francisco, so didn't didn't oh, okay. really live in LA. Huh. Um, when you, I mean, you grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in San Francisco. 
at 18 years old or 20 years old, this was a really weird thing to discover was that you could actually make a living working in television. <laughs> like, I know that sounds weird to say, like, well, yeah, of course you can. But no, it really didn't occur to me. Um, in my head, you were either somebody who was like a big millionaire producer or a famous actor or famous director, right. and, and that was it. Like, I didn't know. No, no, you could, like, you're not going to get rich, but you can make a livable wage okay. right out of college and work as a production assistant or work as an, you know, work in an office or as a junior level writer or whatever. Um, and so when I was a freshman and a sophomore in college, I started seeing my friends graduate and working in television. Now, they weren't going on to fame and fortune. They were going on to just sort of jobs that you do when you're 23 and working in entertainment. But it literally didn't occur to me that that was an option. And that was the one, gr- the greatest thing about UCLA for me had nothing to do with the education and it had everything to do with the exposure I had to being in LA and, and seeing the entertainment business. And so, so basically I focused on internships. My grades were always okay. Um, but to be honest, I never took school that seriously. Um, mm. And instead put all of my attention into interning and um, running a student television show that I did there. And, and those were like, if I had a, if there was a full-time gig I had as a student beyond just paying my bills uh it was it was literally doing a student television show and and the internships i did at paramount and nbc and things like that it had nothing to do with the education because to be honest if you're a political science major you're not trying that hard so um (laughs) so it wasn't it wasn't a big deal uh and so yeah so then i I basically spent uh, my time out of college working in television and i kind of jumped around starting in scripted television um then moved on to documentary television one of my this is true even today uh one of my good and bad qualities is that i kind of like doing everything (laughs) <laughs> um, and uh, uh, and I'm sure more. you know exactly what I mean. Yeah, so, I, I have no um, idea what you're talking about there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but and, and I would say this to anybody if they're if they're trying to look into content creation. The greatest <laughs> thing is somebody who loves to do all of it. The worst thing that's going to happen to you is that you want to do all of it. Um, and so I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of uh, uh, kind of my career path followed that logic. So um, when I graduated college, I had. If you're 22 and just graduated, I had a job a week after I graduated on a, a what was at the time a major television drama. Nice. Um, it's not it's not around anymore, of course, but uh, there was a uh, it was the first at the time we didn't know it would do okay, but um, I was on a show called Crossing Jordan. It had it was okay. the first year of it. Um, it was on NBC. Um, to look back at it now, it was a cheesy, cheesy show, uh, <laughs> but it was fun. You know, uh, it was a, it was a crime solving uh, coroner who you know she. You know, she would she would look at a body and imagine where it was, and she'd solve crimes, and that was Jordan. Uh, but it, anyway, it was a really really good experience and really good exposure at 22. Um, and uh, but I realized through that exposure that big television is very much about doing one job. You're a director. You're okay. a writer. Oh. You're hmm. a uh, you know what I mean. You're you're a set designer. Whatever you want to do. You can be on really successful shows and you can make a lot of money, um, but you're going to be that. You're going to be a writer uh, or you're going to be a TV director, and that's all you're going to do. There's obviously examples that prove me wrong. There's obviously exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, the writers are the ones who do well. The actors are that, you know, you're you're not going to be able to write and edit and also shoot it and and all those kind of things. And and, um, and so it kind of turned me off. One, because I don't consider myself that strong of a writer. So my first gig was in the writer's office. I was actually sort of a writer's assistant for for a couple of years and and helped out and was sort of a junior level writer. Um, And through that experience, I learned that that probably wasn't the best career path for me. Um, Uh In the sense that like I knew my weaknesses, I knew my strength was never going to be 
being a television writer, especially a drama series writer. Mm. Um, and so there was there was two things to that. One was that I knew I just wasn't going to succeed, and I almost felt like I was holding somebody else's place because huh. to be sitting in that writer's room. I mean, there were there had to be thousands of guys and girls who would have loved to have had that gig because they want they were aspiring television dramas, and here this twenty two year old douchebag is sitting here taking up the space and doing his job, but eh, it's not that into it. And so, um, so I left that. Uh, did some TV comedies that all went nowhere. I was literally on a Fox show that we made six episodes, and they were so bad. Fox went, yeah, we're not going to air that, uh, and it never even made the air. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and a couple other like mid-season replacements that got canceled. I mean, it was actually, in that sense, I can say this now, um, but at, at the time, maybe not so much. But it was actually a good experience to be to do that, to be on a canceled show and be on repeated canceled shows mm. to kind of understand <laughs> what that process is like. Because when you, you know, I grew up uh, in a household where my parents had very, very stable jobs. And I'm sure, uh, I don't, I'm sure it sounds like it was the same way with your dad, where he went to the same Toyota dealership every day. <laughs> um, and so the idea of being on a show or on a job that could go away in a month because it got canceled. Right. Um, you know, that's, that was something that, that I had a hard time. Uh, I didn't really have a hard time adjusting to it, but my, certainly my family did. Um, and they didn't necessarily <laughs> understand how that worked. And it's, it's very tough to explain to your parents up in San Francisco, like, no, no, it went away. I'll be fine. But yeah, no, I have to find another job. And guess what? I might have to find another job two months after that. Um, so anyway, but all that yeah. to say that eventually I started, um, I got a random gig because I could also shoot. Um, I got a random gig working on, uh, some, uh, basic cable documentary stuff. Um, So like my first kind of producer gig, if you want to call that, was at Lifetime. Okay. On a Saturday morning. Now, it's funny to you because you kind of know my sense of humor. People who don't know me, uh, let's just say my sense of humor is maybe not appropriate for Lifetime. And uh, (laughs) But yeah, my first show, oh no, hold on, it's going to get better. The first show I worked on as sort of a producer shooter uh, was called Speaking of Women's Health on Lifetime Television. And uh, the host was um, uh, what the what the hell was her name? The uh, Mrs. Brady. She was the host of the show. Um, oh, um, Florence, Florence Henderson. Anderson. Yeah, yeah. Who, by the way, is awesome and curses as much as I do. So, <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, R.I.P. Flow. Uh, but uh, but she was awesome. But anyway, so yeah. So it was this. It was this like Saturday morning Lifetime television show that was completely sponsored by a big name pharmaceutical company and uh and and basically it was on lifetime every saturday morning and and that show let's just say didn't have a big budget behind it <laughs> and so they needed like the 25 year old that knew how to shoot and edit and do all the stuff uh, to go out and make all these f- hilarious little segments so <laughs> like there'd be these like cut to commercials five steps to be fitter park further from the grocery like it's things like that but somebody has to shoot all that and so literally that's okay. what i'm doing is i'm like meeting some like 20 year old aspiring actress and be like yeah yeah here's your big job for the day <laughs> you're gonna park there and walk to the grocery cool all right we got it i think we got it you know and uh, that was that so um anyway all that to say that it uh that eventually landed me at the history channel where i actually probably had my my most television career success uh where i was uh, then became sort of a, a producer for uh, a few different shows, but the one that uh, they're probably most known for working on was called Modern Marvels um, oh, on okay. History Channel. Uh, no, I, I, when I say producer, I wasn't the producer. There's 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 a dozen producers on mm. that show, so I'm doing this episode, and then there's six other people doing six other episodes, and then you just sort of rotate through to get the next assignment. Oh, um, okay. And so yeah. I produced. So uh, there's a number of Modern Marvels that are out there that are actually my my work, so to speak, um, and then a handful of History Channel specials that I did as well, uh, and. 
the specials were actually fun because um, you know this from the podcast. I'm kind of a weird dude. And so they always <laughs> gave me the weird assignment. So like I did a show uh, all about um, Roswell, but not about Roswell as we know it. I did a, a, a special called The Day After Roswell. Uh, about this oh, retired oh. lieutenant colonel who probably set foot in there like for a week in his life. And he decided that uh, because he was there, as he got older, his tails got taller and taller. <laughs> and uh, he wrote this book about all this stuff that he did. And he literally claimed that uh, that because of him and his work on the alien spacecraft at Area 51, that he single-handedly developed the microprocessor, laser technology, <laughs> uh, uh, infrared technology, night vision, um, all came from him in Area 51. And so literally the entire special is me interviewing his – he unfortunately passed away, but I interviewed his son who's a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. And uh, and then uh, and then basically the people who actually invented these things. Like I, I met with a guy who worked at Bell Labs when they actually invented the microprocessor. <laughs> uh, and that's what it is. But anyway, all that to say, that was all a very, very cool experience. But the entire time, um, I'm one, working for somebody else, and two, the love of racing kind of never went away. And okay, you know what I'm saying. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I kind of never. I'm always passionate about going. Um, so at this point, I have no connection to racing anymore, um, outside of a few loose contacts. Some of my friends that are now driving at a pro level. That's about it. Uh, and so from there, I basically went to. Um, uh, I, I did a actually left History Channel because I sold the documentary. HD at the time was just kind of getting going. Um, so HD Net was sort of the first big kind okay. of major HD channel um, and they were looking that. for content they were looking for cheap content and I was let's say 26 at the time um, and so I sold them on the idea of a, uh, a television special about the Rolex 24 at Daytona um, which you know this through <laughs> what you do but uh, uh, for those who don't know the Rolex 24 at Daytona is literally a 24 hour car race uh, it actually just finished a couple weeks ago from when we're recording this uh, but literally the race starts at three in the afternoon on Saturday and ends at three in the afternoon on Sunday. And the whole, the whole point of the race is to go all 24 hours and hope that you don't have anything break and that you can not get caught up in accidents. And usually the people who survive all of that are the people that win. And at the time, um, Pontiac, which used to be a car company, uh, (laughs) Pontiac had a new GTO coming out, and so basically I documented that car kind of rolling out, uh, running through its first test and doing its first ever Daytona 24. And basically that exposed me to what motorsport was as an opportunity for me uh, because oh, at the okay. time – now this was like 2000 – that Daytona – that was the 2006 Daytona, Daytona 24. So I did the shooting from the second half of 2005 into the race in January of 2006. So um, – the market was different then than it is now, but it basically exposed me to the fact that I could work in the sport, and there wasn't any real Hollywood guy um, like me, so to speak, who who came oh. from television, who took kind of that approach. Um, the internet and internet content was was starting to burgeon a little bit, and so I realized, okay, somebody like me who can kind of work as a one man band or a two man band can shoot some very high level content. Um, that right now nobody else is producing and get away with it. And I can charge, um, you know, I can do the work that at the time it took 10 people to do and I can do it with just two of us and we can charge for somewhere in between what you would pay 10 people for and us. And so that was the opportunities I saw. You know what I mean? We make money. The client pays less than they would have paid somebody else. Um, and that's kind of how we worked. And um, so that was always the attitude is that, that it's funny now because now I'm like I'm on the other side of the age spectrum. So I'm like, that's oh, goddamn 25-year-old kids coming in. <laughs> but I was that 25-year-old kid coming in, you know, uh, 12 years ago now. So and basically that's how we started now. So we, we – in racing, you know, it, video is kind of where my, my stranglehold is, but we went from that to also 
being able to do some web development and graphic design and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and racing, all racing is essentially a series of small businesses. Race teams are small businesses. Mm. A lot of times, even like the um, specialty suppliers, somebody makes a special kind of brake, somebody makes a special kind of oil line, things like that. Those are usually small specialty companies that are doing that stuff. So they could all use a 25-year-old kid that just does it. Uh, okay. And they don't have to think twice about it. And that was the opportunities I sought. And that led to kind of where we're at today. And now we're, now we're millionaires. <laughs> so, you know, so look at us and our success. So, yeah, here we are. Yeah. Right. Anyway, but um, wow, okay. So yeah, I'm sorry. I that I I God, I'm terrible about talking about myself, which is hilarious because I just talked for like 20 minutes about myself. But uh, this is not normally what I do. Hey, that's why we're here. That's you know, it's sure. uh, you know, the best thing about this podcast, and I've said this to a lot of my guests, is that everyone's got this different career path and sure. where they got where they are. And it's just amazing yeah. to tell that story and have you say, okay, well, you know, I was a racer and I injured myself and I was a skater and unfortunately it didn't go that way. And I was in the right place at the right time at UCLA. And, yep. you know, then, okay, now you're, you're, you know, you're, you're a big shot with a, with a podcast. Huge, listened huge to deal. By, by millions and millions of people around the world. You're so. welcome. Yeah. And I'm giving you the time. So I hope you yes. feel blessed. Hashtag yes. blessed. I, I, uh, I'm sure you're doing very well with that free podcast. Yeah, yeah, that free podcast <laughs> that our fans who complain don't pay us for. Uh, but uh, so, let's, I, yeah. so go ahead. I guess you know. Let's talk about your content, your content creation now, um, yes. especially in the context of motorsports. You know what I mean? Are you? I, I assume you have a very compressed time frame because you have a season and there's an X amount of time between race and races or, you know, between races. So sure. what kind of deadlines, I mean, what kind of content creation are you doing? Are you doing press releases and video podcasts? I mean, wh- I'm, obviously I assume it's different for each client, but yep. you know, how, um, you know, what kind of stuff and what kind of pressures do you have in, in your content creation, you know, week to week, especially because you're, you know, I assume you're traveling from track to track. You're following the circus around the yep. country, literally. Yep. What yep. kind of, you know, what kind of, what is your job like creating content, doing that all the time? Oh, well, the, the primary thing is scoring heroin um, to keep myself mm. awake. Mm. Um, that's like literally job number one is either find an eight ball. Or find a dealer, um, and there's luckily in LA there's plenty, uh, so it's 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 not a big deal. Um, yeah, I've heard there's a few um, I've heard there's a few people in the past in the racing industry who were involved in um, those yeah, kind of activities. <laughs> might have met a few, but uh, uh, you know, what, let me let, let's 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 make this about you for a second. What do you define as content creation? Um, because I like because so that so first of all, you answered my question when you when you did your hosting bit. Um, you call this content content. It's not content content. No, it's content. It's content. content. It's, it's content. So, content, what do you, what do yes. you define as content? Because I, I always find this. I find like I find marketing and content two very nebulous terms. They didn't mm. start that way, but they're now it's now a very wide yes, net what right. somebody considers content. So, I, I'm curious how you define it. Well, it's also interesting too because I've had someone whose job is a content marketer on the podcast as well. Sure. So the, yeah. everything's blurred. My you know my terms of created content. You know, and I, I guess in the context of this question is, yeah. I, I assume that you have to create press releases and you have to create videos and you yes, have sir. to, um, you know, maybe do some sponsor spots and, yes. you know, some promos and stuff like that. So I'm talking about in terms of video creation, audio creation, you know, printer or, or online right. media, that kind of thing. Right. Well, um, so if we're, if we're keeping this sort of broad people who don't know racing, back to what we were talking about earlier, I look at, you got to look at racing as nothing but small businesses. Mm. Um, so small businesses are always going to have very individual needs and also very individual tastes, um, which is actually mm. sometimes just as much work as the need itself. Uh, so 
So, you know, if we're using an example, I, I try not to name out my clients just because um, some of them don't like it. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, you, uh, in the context of sports car racing, probably know me for one particular client who's known for being funny. Um, and uh, that client, we kind of do everything for. We build their website. We write all their press releases. We do all their video production. We do all their live web streaming, uh, which they do at a, a few of the races. I mean, sh- Shit, we even designed their apparel this year. I mean, we um, like literally. So there, so some teams like in the sports car paddock who are very small businesses, um, a company like us is a resource that they can just dump off all the stuff that they don't want to deal with. So if you're a okay. race team, if we're keeping this in the context of racing for a second, if you're a race team, you're trying to put a race car on the track, depending on your business motive. So um, mm. in the case of, of the fun team that we're talking about, uh, uh, that race team, like honestly, the number one motive behind that company is that the team owner has fun. Okay. Okay. You, you see what that, I'm saying? That's a pretty good uh, business. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's a great business. Uh, and, uh, and, and fun doesn't necessarily mean that, the, that everything is funny and it's a great family environment. That's part of it, but mm. also means that the team is competitive. Um, okay. Because the great, like, I don't care how great your videos and press releases are, the absolute greatest splendor you can have in racing is winning races. Um, right. So at the end of the day, the job of the race team is to win races and make this guy happy. That is their job. Um, and there's a lot of, but to do that, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, the mechanics make the car, make sure the car is fast and doesn't fall apart. The engineer makes sure the car goes faster. Uh, his co-drivers make sure that they're fast as well and that they're as good as any pro out there. Um, so somebody has to do all the other stuff. And and so that falls on the, to our company. We literally okay, yeah. developed everything for them, um, kind of their straight down to their logo, their apparel, all the stuff that you see presenting the team, the, the livery that you see on the truck. Um, but then there's other clients who just have us do one specific uh, process. So um, we actually in... So the race series that we're talking about right now is a series called the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Challenge, uh, Sports Car Series, and uh, and that series has, I would say at this point, about uh, twenty teams or so, um, and we service about five of them uh, in that series. Okay. Now that I think about it, yeah, we serve five of them, um, but none of them are the same role. So, uh, huh. for example, there's a there's an Italian client uh, that we work with, and we do all of their creative assets, but we don't do any of their actual posting so for example um if you see a cool graphic design or cool video on their instagram we made that but we didn't post it they've got an in-house person that does that so that's where the content producer versus content manager thing comes in place so so you see what i'm saying so for so that's but that's an interesting example as a race team so like they have a content manager who doesn't produce content she just manages it she makes sure that everything is on schedule and that she's getting all the assets and i know what i'm doing so we literally and people don't even know we work for this client which we kind of like um but uh uh, but yeah there's a very popular red italian car uh that races in that (laughs) series Uh, well now it's white um and uh and we do all of the content creation for them so their videos their hero cards the little autograph cards that fans sign all the cool little instagram graphics and things like that that comes from us um but again that's entirely different from the other team where we are the ones who are also doing the posting and managing the website and all that kind of stuff uh there's another team in that paddock that we just do video production for and that's it. Just videos. We give it to somebody else, and then they deal with it. Um, so people kind of use this, and that's where where I like to use the phrase "whores" because <laughs> you know uh, we we provide any kind of function that you want, and uh, and it really depends on what the client needs. Now, I keep saying racing is thirty percent of our income and fifty sixty percent of our workload, and that's probably the single biggest uh, part of it. Is that all of those things I mentioned 
that's a lot of work, right? Uh, but right. it's race teams inherently don't want to pay for it. And uh, <laughs> most businesses don't. I don't think no, that's exactly. And, and and this is one of the interesting things. Like when we talk about content creation, one of my and I can't even get frustrated with it because it's not going to change just because I'm frustrated with it. But but one of the challenges that I think is facing the content creation world is that it is such a wide term anymore. Yeah. That the wider the term becomes, the larger the surplus of people that can do it. Therefore, the the value goes down, and so the kind of the direction we have to think of as a business is okay. Well, where are the specialties, and where are the certain echelons that we want to put ourselves into, mm. so that we're not, oh, you know, point. it's why we don't like to say content creation uh, because we don't want to like. There's plenty of, sorry, to, I don't want to sound ages here, but there's tw- plenty of 23 year olds with no real world experience who can call themselves content creators, and so what's yeah. the difference? So we want to make sure we're not seen as that, and that's uh, probably the single business kind of forward facing uh, challenge that we have. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because, you know, I've actually – with other guests in the past, we talk about the same thing where, sure. you know, I've been to a conference and this person's saying we're content developers and this one's saying we're content engineers or yeah. we need to be this or we need to be that. And it's it's a fracturing and I'm wondering, you know, you know how much fracturing is too much fracturing or, you know, how specialized do you get? Oh, I'd say we're already there. Um, and, oh. and you know, if we're looking at the problems in motorsports, which we're – again, this is not a motorsport podcast, so I'll try and <laughs> stay away from it. But um, – the <laughs> we start saying I'm a content business developer. Like the more words we start putting in front of the fucking word yeah, content, we're, yeah. <laughs> we're in trouble. Um, and so that's why, as a business, like in terms of the way we brand ourselves, we we like to brand ourselves as complete assholes, and that's part of why. Because okay, good. I want to sit inside somebody's office and say, "What do you do?" I'm like, "I make shit," and they're like, "Okay, now <laughs> I get what you do." I don't. It doesn't right. need to get any more complicated than that, you know. Um, and if they want us to do X, we'll do X, and if they want us to do Y, we'll do Y. Um, and if they want us to sort of propose what we should doing, and, and which is the kind of client we like the most. Um, then we'll develop the whole strategy and tell them how to do it. But we try and not label ourselves as content creators or content managers or content developers because at a certain point, we're just starting to put just words in front of other words and it doesn't make any damn sense to me. So um, I'm, I'm yeah, trying to I can imagine, put some like, real world you sense said, to it. You know, I can imagine small businesses don't know. They don't know what the difference between a content yeah. strategist or an information architect or a tech writer yep. or yep. a producer or a content developer. They don't know. Yep. They just want to know, are you the guy who can I, I can give – I just this, want you to make this damn thing I'm trying I, to get made. Know, can yeah. you make me a goddamn video? Yeah, that's exactly it. And so I want to look at a guy and, and say, yeah, we're going to make a goddamn video and be and we're done. And it's a clear invoice and everyone knows what the deal is and there's no mystery behind it. And that's kind of – it's really worked for us. Um, you know, okay. it, it, it uh, as we grow as a business and try and get ourselves into bigger and bigger clients, that's where it becomes a little bit of a challenge. Um, but, uh, but certainly – uh, we've managed for, I mean, shit, we're 10 years old now. And oh, wow. uh, what's managed to work for us as a business is this approach of just saying, no, we're just going to do it. Don't worry about it. We got it. And it, and it works. Now, if you don't mind me asking, how big is Media Barons now? Oh, it's massive. It is. We, uh, <laughs> we call ourselves multi-global. Area. Huh? <laughs> Taking over the LA area? Yeah, we're taking. Yeah, we're uh, we are one street at a time, uh, one suite at a time, taking over LA. Uh, no, it's it's a very small business. Um, I don't mind saying this. It, it's uh, full time. It's four of us. Okay. Um, so it's not not big at all. Um, uh, we I think like to look a little bigger than we are. I think most people who get to know us realize the deal pretty quickly that it's just four of us. Um, but we also have a really really strong network um, that we contract out for different projects. So um, so for example, okay. big commercial shoots. Um, you know, we uh, 
for the for the commercial shoots that we do if it's if it really is a bigger project um like there's a few oem car things that we've done and things like that obviously you need because of time and whatnot you need a bigger crew just to be able to move things around quicker and and set up quicker and things like that um for those kind of things we have plenty of guys that we can and girls that we can uh hire in and bring in so we we can we've had as many as 30 people on one project um but if you were to look at our if you were to look at our payroll and if you're working for the internal revenue service it is four people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay cool what i wanted to ask you is you talked about working with one of the teams has a content manager you're yeah. creating the content and they're basically putting it up how is that relationship and can you talk about that relationship and how that works and are they Italian? You know, how is that how is that opposed to you know i mean what, what's the difference in control for you i guess you know do you control i guess that's a question is yeah what's the difference well um are you italian that's, that's the first question um, I do not have. I have German heritage. Oh, okay, me too. Um, German and but, English. Uh, all right. Uh, it depends on if you're working for Italians or not. Um, that's that's a single. <laughs> no, that's God. I hope they don't <laughs> listen to this. Um, but uh, so here, here's the truth, and and I don't know your experience or, or actually, kind of throwing it back to you. What what do some of the other folks say on this kind of thing in terms of what's what's the process like? Well, I mean, for us, it's well. That's you know, that's what I want to understand. Your process, yeah. my process, is reaching out via email to subject matter experts or sure. you know, playing with software or yeah. you know, talking to people about you know what kind of workflows that they have that's in their SharePoint or their their document sure. library that we can sure. bring out and and document and create or right. aggregate that content in a centralized location. So it's not. Right. You know, it's very kind of different, I think, than what you're doing. But I'm interested in how you manage that relationship. Sure. I guess. Well, um, I mean, there's no easy answer, and it's you kind of break it up into sort of two major categories, and then a million subcategories from there. So the two major mm. categories that you look at are the size of the business, because the size of the business in almost entirely dictates the structure you're going to work within. If there's um, the if there's one thing I've noticed in 100 percent of the businesses that I've worked with. Uh, is that all businesses are from the top down. So if the guy in charge is chaos, everything that you're going to do is going to be chaos. Um, if the guy in charge or girl uh, is is very organized and methodical and level-headed, everybody working for them is going to be methodical and organized and level-headed. Uh, and there somewhere. are a million combinations in between. And so that that's the single biggest factor that we've noticed with 100% of our clients. Um, now, okay. breaking in that down, you kind of have two sects. You have bigger businesses and smaller businesses. And the difference is, are you dealing with a team of people or are you dealing with one person? Um, okay. And, and that is the single biggest difference in our process. Because if you're dealing with one person, um, I don't want to call it easier or harder because it entirely depends on the personality. But there's an accountability that's fantastic. Um, because mm. you know what I'm saying? So, um, you're dealing with one person. You're dealing with one person, so you can kind of gauge their sensibilities. Um, so, you know, we, we have a client that notoriously changes everything we do to the point that, like, we can't even, we can't even predict what the notes are going to be. Um, <laughs> If that makes any sense, because uh, and and like, because you'll put out four drafts and they go back to changes that are from draft one, and and that's for press releases or designer content or whatever it is. But at least it's that one person you're dealing with, and so you don't have to worry about kind of what the process is going to be. What we find with uh, bigger businesses, and this is a it's a business challenge because the money is in the bigger businesses, of course, and the freedom mm. to spend what you want to spend is usually uh, there. You, you know, you're never going to find it. with a bigger business, you're never going to kind of give them the quote and go. Eh, 
this works. You know, like that's <laughs> that's less of the case with bigger business. But the trade-off is that you're going to have to deal with a team of people. And here's the fundamental challenge we have with the team of people. And I don't know if this is – I don't think this is unique to us. I think this is all bigger businesses. The challenge for us is how to handle it. Um, there mm. are two kinds of notes when you're dealing with a bigger business. There are notes that are there for what they believe is a good change. And there are notes that are there so that everyone saw that they replied. And you know exactly what I'm talking about when this I say that. To, this is not endemic. No, to no, no. This is, this is, I mean, you work for a large financial firm. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So the, um, the hardest challenge for us with larger businesses, and obviously from a business model, we need to be more with those kind of companies, is how do I not lose mm-hmm. my shit when literally in one email – you have aggregated notes that are literally <laughs> in opposition from the other. So one person will be like, I think you should make the logo blue. And somebody else is like, well, I think it should be red. And you're like, okay, I don't know who outweighs the other, so what am I doing? Um, so this is, And this is where being in business for 10 years has been very helpful is that we've actually developed um, – one, we've d- just developed a more acute sense of, of that process. So if we know it's going to be that way, well, that like, we'll still work with them. We just, it's going to reflect in the proposed cost because we just, we put in the, the annoyance tax. And then, um, <laughs> uh, but then part two is you also build that into the structure so that they know it. So, um, so for example, we put in for bigger projects, we'll put in what we call a management fee. Um, and if a client is scrutinizing your quote and they're sort of like, okay, it's going to cost this much for the number of hours for design and it's going to cost this much in this media and storage. And then like, what is that management fee? Because that's usually the first thing they want to argue. Like, what, what is that? And we explain, well, the management fee is the number of people we have to interact with. If you want us to interact with the entire team, <laughs> that unfortunately does. And we, and we explain it very point of fact that, look, it's going to be extra hours. It's, you know, it's, it's mm. more time on us to deal with this. If you, if you don't come at it as, a, as, a, as much of an asshole as I want to be, um, if you don't say, look, you're going to be a pain in the ass and I know it. Like if you don't say it that way and just say like, no, it's going to be extra hours because of this, this, and this, um, they usually understand and then they have to make mm. that collective call. So if they want us to get rid of the management fee, the compromise is cool, happy to waive that, but I'm going to just deal with you. Oh, okay. That's, you know, that's a nice um, leverage point. Yeah, and, and so that's literally how we how we handle that. And it doesn't always work, uh, but it, it certainly has been a process that's worked really well for us over the years. Um, individual clients, you literally just have to assess the pain in the ass tax, you know, uh, and, and that only comes with time and understanding how personalities work. Um, you know, it, it even comes down to what time of the day are they sending you emails? How often do they call you? Are they calling you because they just don't want to deal with email? You know, it, it, there's a lot of things that you can gauge how difficult mm. or, or easy somebody's going to be with, and then you just kind of go with it. But um, to your point, back to racing, one of the challenges we have with racing is the fact that so much of racing is chaos and disorganization across the board. Mm. It doesn't matter what, doesn't matter what supplier, what race team, whatever it is, they're all chaos, and so um, you have to build that in. Like the the hours we do in commercial work and corporate work versus the hours we do in racing, they theoretically could line up. Mm. Uh, like in other words, like yeah, they're gonna like every day is gonna be a long day, but you can make it all work. But it doesn't account for the fact that you don't control your schedule the second you have a racing client because everything is <laughs> oh the deadline is now tomorrow. Oh, can you do this right now? Oh, can you send me that logo? And you're like what? Okay, but everything I do, you're taking me away from something else. Right. And and that's one of the biggest challenges yeah. with motorsports is that it's every client is that way a hundred percent of them. So. Yeah, yeah, that's anyway. um, that sounds like where I am now. With oh, hey, I, I put in this ticket can for new content. 
Oh, and I our schedule change yeah. can today. Oh, our schedule yeah. change. Can you get this in by the end of the week? I'm like, wait, how did this? It's not like I'm waiting here, sitting yeah. around waiting, twiddling my thumbs for some new business to come along. Yeah, you exactly. Know, it's, no, uh, it's, it's and that's exactly it. So the and that's you know that's it's the trade off. And so I would say like that's just one of the challenges of having your own business. But you know, obviously, you have the same check coming in twice a month or however often, and it's you still have the same problem. So I guess you just kind of choose your battles, but. Uh, but it's well, it's okay. It's so how has your role time. changed? I mean, obviously, you started in business over ten years ago at this point. Yeah. How has your role changed from you know just beginning a twenty-five year old guy, it's thirty or twenty-seven year old guy, um, to be you know the mo- the media mogul that you are now, seeing a huge media huge. empire. When I'm done with this with this uh, with this recording, I am literally going to fill my bathtub with money and just lie <laughs> in it, um, and uh, and then we'll see where the I'm night goes. Business. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, shit, I didn't actually think about that. I don't know. Um, uh, how it's changed is that I'm older and my vision is worse. Yeah. I think those yeah. are the two biggest things that have, that have come up. Uh, now, um, you know, the, 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 the role for me has changed uh, primarily in perspective and, um, mm. and being able to see things coming that maybe I didn't 10 years ago. Um, okay. so I'll give you a perfect example of, uh, and it's not so much about the role as much as sort of, sort of my own skill set. Uh, one of my biggest challenges, let's say 10, between five and 10 years ago, my single biggest challenge was getting paid. Um, hmm. not because I didn't do a hmm, good job, okay. not because I failed to deliver the product. Um, and while there were a few scumbags, some just are just difficult to get a check out of. Um, and Racing is, I mean, unfortunately, racing is synonymous with people not getting paid, especially vendors like myself who are not the priority. You know, if you've only got so okay. much money and you're going to pay your tire mm. bill versus the guy that built your website, you're going to pay the tire bill first because <laughs> right. that gets your car on the racetrack. So get so the 26-year-old uh, that, that made your website, he can wait. And that was always the position I found myself in. And, um, mm. and that created a lot of stress uh, for me early on in the business because – you know, in your head, you're like, oh, well, I've got, I'm good because this guy is going to send me this money and this guy's going to, I mean, fine, that's no problem. And then all of a sudden this guy doesn't send you and then this guy sends you. So now you're taking the one check that you did get and you're trying to hold it over to, you know, to make it work because six other people didn't pay you. And again, it's not that you didn't do your job. It's not that, that uh, they're bad people. It's just for whatever reason, it doesn't work out. Um, I would say the single biggest factor for our business has been putting procedures in place. Um <laughs> And also, like, learning when it's time to get rid of a client, um, which I don't know how much mm. you've discussed that on the podcast. I honestly think that's the biggest part of a business success is knowing when to label a client toxic and knowing when to get rid of them uh, because they are holding you back even though you think they're moving you forward. Um, and so that single perception has been, I think, the game changer for us in the business. Um, some of the partners that I've had on, um, who, like, for example, my my partner that I probably mentioned the most is a guy named Jason. Um, he handles almost all of our billing and finance because that's much more his strength than mine. Um, and he's put some very rigorous procedures in place to make sure we're never chasing down money. And I will say our current roster of clients are excellent about mm. paying us, paying us on time. Um, we're never stressed about that kind of thing. And, you know, credit cards reflect that. So, um, <laughs> so uh, and, and part of that is just being around long enough that we don't have to keep every client. Uh, and part of that is also okay. just having the wherewithal, you know, we, and that is something that if you're starting your own business, it's easy to say, well, no, I'm not doing this because if they don't pay me, but yeah, but you say that, but when you only got three clients, you know, you, right. you bend to the rules or you trust them a little bit more, you know, we don't, 
we're very happy to have more clients. We don't need them. And so we're, if something looks like it's not going to work, we just don't do it. Um, or we know when to get rid of a client if they're just not working out. Okay. Well, that's my, I guess my question is, sure. um, you know, how do you, you know, you've, you've said earlier in the podcast a couple of times that you guys are, are whores yeah. and you're doing it for, for money. Yeah. So how do you, how do you say, okay, well, okay, I'm a whore and I need money, but okay, I've, this guy is just causing, or this company or whatever is causing more trouble than it's worth. You decide the difference. Uh, okay. I, I'll answer your question. Um, <laughs> here is, here is, uh, I'm using the wrong term. We've elevated ourselves. We're now call girls. Okay. So that's the difference, really, um, <laughs> is, is that now we're high-class whores. And so, uh, so we don't just do this for anybody. Um, we're, we, don't know, we no longer okay. have to walk on the streets um, and just work for whoever pulls over. We now, you know, now you have to be vetted and you have to call us and then we come out. Okay. Well, so I guess that's a big change. If we're, the... if we're keeping to the whore analogy, which is my fault for starting <laughs> it, uh, but um, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, honestly, it's it's a combination of being comfortable enough with your current client roster to know that you don't necessarily need more clients. Okay. Also, accepting certain projects because they know you put that in there. Like there is, I can think of one example of a client who we maybe don't necessarily care for working with, especially against the amount of money that we make. Um, but the check is sizable enough that we look at as, as buying our freedom. In other words, like we do this little bit of work for this client. We don't necessarily care for it. We find them a little bit difficult, um, but relative to what they're paying and the fact that mm. we're not chasing down money anywhere, that now gives us the freedom to say no when somebody else calls us um, God, and okay. wants to do this, that, or the other thing. So um, if we're like racing is a perfect example, our, our biggest problem in racing is the, oh, you're going to be there anyway um, uh, syndrome. So video is a perfect <laughs> example that because I'm there, People assume, oh, you're there. Just bring your camera and shoot this other video for us. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That, that, that's not how this works because that's inherently devaluing what we do. Um, and there's a time where – I'm serious. Like it's not forward thinking. Oh, thank you. Be, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because it's not yes. forward thinking. Like you think you're doing a service and you think you're making a few extra a few extra bucks. But the truth is what you're literally doing is saying, yeah, this is all this is worth to me um, and or all or accepting that it's all that it's worth to them. Um, and that's taken a mm. long time uh, for me to adjust that kind of thinking. But it's the truth. And uh, we're in a financial position now and in a client position where we don't need to take those kind of jobs. And so we just say no. Uh, but it's nice. it's hard. It's very hard early on in a business to say no to things. Yeah, I mean, you know, go back to my analogy before of okay, yeah. yesterday when ten o'clock they they put yeah. in a ticket, and now today it's a day and a half later. It's like no, you know, okay, we've got to manage expectation, and it's it's right. a, it's, a, it's a very interesting parallel. Yeah, um, the term we like to use is training your clients. Um, yes, and yeah. and this is where my partner Jason is excellent at this stuff, and I am not uh, because I like to be responsive. I think that's part of the job is you should always be ultra responsive, and Jason will take time to get back to people um, or call them or say, no, you have to call me between these hours or email me and we'll schedule a call. Um, and in my head, I'm like, that's terrible service, but it kind of works for him because it <laughs> it trains a client to respect his time. Um, right. And yeah. you right, sit yes. there and want to be like, well, they're paying you. Who cares? I'm like, no, no, no. But if you let that get out of hand, they don't appreciate the payment. Um, and and it and that's one of the challenges of the business, especially back to racing, is that you don't want people to be so tied to you that they can't live without you, and now you can't get anything done because of it. Right. Yeah. Oh, so, that's interesting. That's yeah. So interesting. Yeah. So, so many considerations about managing a business that you don't think about. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll give you the secret. Do you want the secret? I'll tell you the secret. If you want to start your own content creation business. Uh, um, okay. Okay. Well, I'll just I'll tell you the secret because, <laughs> uh, and no one's ever asked. So, um, so I'll I'll pretend like you asked. 
Um, here's and I would not consider myself successful. So here is what I would say about people that are successful um, in in a small business, especially if you're starting if you're starting with no capital and no real assets, and you're just trying to figure it out on your own as you go, and you want to start your own deal. Here's a secret: be perfect at everything. Huh. Okay. Be perfect at everything, and if you're not, then start figuring out how you need to tailor things so that it works for you. Yeah, I yeah, okay, that makes sense because you know you can't start. I mean, you can't be perfect, so you got to figure out where your yeah where, where your, you're not where your goals are, where your priorities are. Yeah, like uh, in my head, I should be a billionaire by now. Somehow, I'm not, mm. um, and it's weird because I thought I was perfect at everything, but apparently, maybe I'm not. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> But you seem to be doing all right. So, you know, I mean, you're still around. You're making a good, nice podcast, which I want to talk about. Oh, sure. Kinda, all right. So we, we've kind of danced around that a little bit. Um, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, there's this there's this podcast. Okay. In terms of setup, let me give the backstory. Sure. Um, Sean is the co-host of a podcast called Dinner with Racers. His other co-host is Ryan Eversley, who is a race car driver for um, Acura. He's a factory driver for Acura. He runs primarily in the GT3 series, but yep. I think he's running, uh, you know, he looks like he's got a pretty diverse schedule over the next He does, right yeah, and he's hopefully he's got some more programs coming out, but uh, I'll let him kind of talk about that for himself. But, uh, but anyway, I'll let yeah. you finish, sorry. Yeah, I was uh, a little upset that he didn't get the uh, Penske drive. Not surprised, but I'm, you know. He definitely deserved it. Anyhow. I'm not touching um, that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to represent Ryan a little bit, uh, so I don't want to get him in trouble by giving my own opinions. Fair enough. Um, so basically the premise of the podcast is Sean and Ryan the, drive the a – The premise of Dinner with Racers. If, 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 well, if there is such a thing. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Basically, well, the idea, now, I don't know if there's a premise, but the, the for some reason, these guys get together in an Acura MDX with yes, Continental tires. Yes, sir. And Love those um, Continental driver, tires, by the way. Sorry to interrupt. I, was, yeah. I can't say enough about the Continental tires. <laughs> I was in a parking lot yesterday, yep. and I got out of my car, and I looked at a car to my right, and there was Continental Contact LX Sports, and I, I, Boom. I, I chuckled. Boom. I chuckled. Did you hear it? Did you hear it in your head? <laughs> I did. Yes. Oh God, I did. Marketing. I did. <laughs> so basically, Sean and Ryan drive around the country and for 30 days, 34 days, whatever, and interview famous people in the racing community, whether it's, you know, legends in NASCAR or IndyCar or IMSA or, you know, rally. Federal penitentiaries. I mean, it's literally pretty much every discipline of the sport and some of the most famous people in the sport forever for from mario andretti to oh god my favorite you guys had paul tracy on oh, i loved him I, oh god i love him yeah, um, paul's a man you know people like scott tucker well that's a let's talk off uh check out um, episode two of dirty money on netflix you'll learn all about scott tucker <laughs> oh it's okay um, it's actually really good oh okay i have to yeah, follow that it's now. well worth seeing um yeah. It, you know, you've you've had the the most famous people and the coolest people. God, you had Craig oh, Hampson. You. I love Craig. Oh, Hampson. Craig's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we didn't know him you. going in, and he was um, actually Craig is one of those episodes that I love personally. Um, I don't really have such a thing as a favorite, but uh, okay. Craig is one of those guys who I the, the episodes I personally enjoy the most are the ones where we didn't know them, and they're not mm. necessarily household names. Like I wouldn't call Craig a, a household name unless you're a big, mm. big, big IndyCar fan. And um, so, like Craig Hampson is an engineer in IndyCar racing. He's won a bunch of stuff. Uh, mm. But but engineers are not the drivers. They're not the team owners. They're not the guys that get a lot of credibility. And, you know, Ryan and I in the IndyCar paddock are maybe not 
as uh, we don't know everybody as personally as we do in say the sports car paddock. So we didn't know him when he showed up, and mm. and he was very insightful. I mean, he he spoke like a you know like a high school uh, physics teacher in the sense that he broke everything down very logically and it was very understandable. And um, the episodes like that, we're like, holy shit, this guy's really cool, and he really makes sense <laughs> when he talks. Those are always the ones that I'm mm. most happy with. Um, so yeah. So anyway, I'll let you finish. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, no, no, no that's awesome. A, um, you know, who knows? Like Tony Stewart, yeah. and um, oh my god, who was? I just had a couple ideas um, that I loved. Um, actually, I just listened to Doctor Jerry Punch yesterday. Oh, yeah. I thought he was really, really good. Writer, director, um, and producer of Days of Thunder. You know, I didn't realize he was an actual doctor. So they hear oh, the yeah. stories were absolutely. Oh, you amazing. just thought like doctor was just like a nickname. Well, I you know no, that's fine. No, I, that's awesome. That's why know, the podcast exists. So you learn these things. Right. I mean, I knew his doctor, but I didn't know if he was a PhD yeah, or, yeah, or an MD or, or what. Yeah, or, yeah. You know, he could be a dentist. I think you inter- introduced the podcast as doctor, dentist, Dr. Joe. Oh, no, no, no. Let me, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of insight. And, and again, I know not everybody here is racing oriented, but, uh, but, but Dr. Jerry Punch has a, uh, great sense of humor but it's his sense of humor uh in other words like we kept trying to lob out jokes and he had zero interest in rolling with our jokes it was all about what he wanted to do which was fine so like yeah so his um his undergraduate uh was in zoology right so he's a proper md and 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 all that but his his undergrad degree was zoology so we thought it'd be funny like oh so you're a veterinarian and like he shut that down in the first two seconds of us saying oh so you're a veterinarian nope real doctor it's like okay sorry <laughs> love that guy but anyway, so, so anyhow, how did this? I mean, you've interviewed some of the famous people. You, I mean, for God's sake, you drive around the country in an yeah. Afro. Well, yeah. So it, how it did kinda, you? How did this all come about? It, well, it's something that Ryan and I had been wanting to do for a while. So you know, again, it, the premise is exactly what it's called. It's called dinner with racers because that's literally what we do: is we drive around the country and we have lunch or dinner with with people in car racing. And and um, obviously, it's a niche audience, but it's a very loyal one. You're a perfect example. And um, it's so. In addition to being a very high-class call girl, um, I am also, I think the term is hack. Um, my, <laughs> my skill is in just stealing other people's ideas and then pretending like they're mine. Um, and the truth is I'm also, uh, I can't say I listen to a ton, but there are a couple podcasts that I'm very, very loyal to. Um, and okay. my, uh, beyond ice skating and car racing, my other really big passion is comedy. And uh, stand up, oh, okay. sketch, you name it. I'm a big, big comedy guy. And uh, so there are two comedy oriented podcasts that I listen to quite a bit WTF with Mark Marin and The Nerdist. Okay. Uh, and uh, and I, I don't know. There's nothing I can say more. It's those podcasts. If you listen to those podcasts, you'll understand where our influences came from in terms of format. Um, because uh, both of those podcasts, uh, so Nerdist is run by a guy named Chris Hardwick who. He's all over TV now, but Chris Hardwick as a comedian is a guy that I've respected uh, a ton because he's lasted as long as he has. Um, and he found this kind of unique industry uh, with doing kind of nerd-based comedy. But uh, his format is very, very open and very, very inviting. He just has comedians, and, and now it's a little bit more open. Now he has politicians and other random interesting people. Same thing with Mark Maron. And there's, it's just like what we're doing here. There is no structure. Like maybe he has a couple of loose mm. questions, but it's all like, okay, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, I know you as this chick on Seinfeld, but I don't know anything about you. Uh, mm. And they go into it and they just, they like there's, it may, literally may be 90 minutes about just talking about one story about raising a sheep growing up, or it might be their entire career history. You just don't know what's going to happen until they sit down. And it's an awesome insight into what they're like. And I was like, you know, there are a lot of racing podcasts out, but there's nothing that quite does that um mm. and so i was like so 
I kept thinking this would be something that I feel like we need as a sport. And and the single best way that we found to get the best stories out of people was having dinner. Um, everybody in motorsport can tell you about that funny time they sat down with so-and-so on a Friday night at Outback <laughs> Steakhouse and comedy ensued. I'm like, well, we just need to capture that. Um, and that's where the idea came from. So literally, we I brought my podcast recording gear to racetracks for a year thinking, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to start it this weekend, right, Ryan? Let's do it. And it was going to be like, okay, Andy, let's say uh, you're going to be our first episode. And then it just never worked out because somebody had a bad day. <laughs> they don't want to go to dinner. We got a, there's a 7 a.m. practice session the next day. We don't want to go too late. People don't want to drink. Whatever the reason, it just never took off. Um, and it was like, well, shit, what we need to do is October in motorsport is kind of, with the exception of NASCAR, mm. October is kind of the slow period for IndyCar and sports car racing. And so, shit, let's just do it then. Uh, so we realized we just need to make a road trip out of this and just do it. Um, we were very, very fortunate that Ryan had a great relationship with Continental prior uh, just because he's done a lot of spokesman work for them. Um, I have a great relationship with Continental because they know me for a lot of the content that I produce for clients. And okay. uh, so oh, between okay. the two things, it's like, okay, well, these two are people that we trust. They gave us money to go do the road trip. I mean, uh, we've been very fortunate to have Continental, but we'd be lying to say that we're really making money off of it. They just gave us enough to basically cover our expenses. And okay. and um, Acura and Honda have always been on board with us sort of putting the mileage on a car. Um, and that's kind of where the idea came from. So we did the first season where we were primarily just meeting up with people we knew because we didn't know what we were doing. We expected it to barely be listened to or people to hate it uh, because <laughs> that's what the internet does. And then uh, and then it didn't quite work. It it, it, it was actually successful. It was like, well, shit, we got to keep doing it now. And then season two did okay. even better. And then the, this last season that we put out over the winter was insane. But it's like to your point, it is a single-month road trip. I don't know if it'll continue that way, but um, – it's a one-month road trip. So the one very big difference between us and other podcasts uh, is that we are a seasonal binge release. So, right. So it's so there's a season one, there's a season two, there's a season three. It's not like most podcasts where it's every Tuesday or whatever. Mm. Um, it, 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 uh, and for us, it's not that we don't want to do that. It's just we had to look at the sandbox that we're working in. It's like we're not going to be able to do this because we can't develop an archive of, of 52 episodes. Um, mm, mm. and, and the other thing is, especially the first season, the binge release to me, and I still stand by this today because, you know, we now have the discussions and Continental has these discussions with us as well. It's like, should we be a more recurring weekly thing? And while there is a good logic to it, the, the early couple seasons, I think the way we did it was the right way because if you're doing it weekly, you're actually limiting what the audience can have because if they're not interested in that person, you've lost them forever. And I would rather huh. hit them over the head with, no, 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 here's 28 people. Choose which one you like, and then go to the next one. Yeah, like, like yeah, you don't have to yeah. listen to these in chronology, um, and these aren't topics of the week. So whether you listen to this guy today or a year from now, it's still going to be the same insight. It's not going to nothing outside of like maybe he's driving for a different team, but it's not like we're doing topics of the week. Um, so the conversations are meant to be evergreen and, and shooting the shit and things like that. So it's for that for all those reasons, it's worked really really well. And I think the 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 single biggest response we get from people is just that they've never known what it was like to sit down with people this casually and hear these stories because when people are at a racetrack, they're in PR mode. So uh, maybe with the exception of Tony Stewart, uh, but uh, but a lot of these drivers, you don't know that they're that funny or that they have that crazy side to them or hmm. or that they're that good of a dad or whatever it is. And, and when you're at their hometown having dinner at their favorite restaurant, that kind of stuff comes out. Uh, and that's kind of been the biggest thing for us. And the, the single biggest compliment that I like is that uh, people find it educational. When people say, I learned a lot, that actually means more to me than anything. Yeah. Um, because that's actually was always my ultimate goal was that I don't think people necessarily understand everything that goes into the sport. 
Um, and sure. so telling these kind of stories, you know, you mentioned Craig Hampson, like what was life like as a 23 year old straight out of college engineer when you're doing junior level work? You don't necessarily know about that when you're watching it on TV. What's that 23 year old doing, you know, doing the electrical wiring? And um, right. and that's the kind of stuff that I think is, is out there. And I think racing fans, but I don't know if, if people outside of racing care, but people in racing, I think really appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's you know it's it's blah. That's right. It's interesting that you mentioned educational because I know speaking again about Craig Hampson that yeah. you kind of said it had a separate episode yeah. for him for just the edu- you know if you're a young engineer here's how you get into the sport and I think you did another episode similar to that this year. Um, so that educational aspect comes through and it's like yeah you do. I mean I've learned you know you think you know somebody but then you sit down with them like you said break bread over dinner or, or lunch or whatever you know and get to know them personally. Yep. I mean. You know, Scott, as you know, Scott Dixon isn't a very talkative yeah, guy outside. Yeah, he's one of our favorites for exactly just, that reason. You know, talk, you know, a lot of people, you just get to talk to them. As, and that's what I love about doing this podcast is, cause, you know, same goal is, hey, here's let's talk to somebody who normally wouldn't, you know, be that, you know, be yeah. in the spotlight or something, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Well, that's um, actually the other secret is that because it's two of us driving, um, I don't drink, but Ryan does. And so uh, <laughs> he's he's very happy to sort of like when you get a racing driver in front of another racing driver, you know. Oh, they're they're going to outdo the other, and that's when the stories come. Yeah. So, uh, and we know that I'll drive, so we can just keep going. So, I thought Dari was doing all the driving. Uh, excuse me, uh, he did, this season, but that was only season three. We we're very lucky to have that beautiful, yeah. beautiful man. Fair Ladies, enough. if you're listening, hey, uh, Google I'm image jealous. Dario Franchitti. That is, I, I, he's um, what's um, Ashley Judd's former husband. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. very little, just a little jealous of his hair. Yes, yeah, it's, it's um, gorgeous. So. Can we talk a little bit, you know, about, again, wrapping around to the content side of it? Sure. Are you doing any metrics on the podcast side? Are you saying? Absolutely. Is, you know, is, okay, let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. Then. Yeah, well, so we're doing metrics quite a bit. Um, well, so there's, uh, from a from a podcast creation standpoint, it sounds like you and I are actually very similar in this way that um, Ryan and I had our different motives to want, beyond just wanting to meet these people. My personal investment, I knew I wasn't going to make money at it. Uh, my personal investment was this podcast is a perfect example of it, is that people, like I was always making this cool content um, for other teams um, and people within motorsport and people would recognize that content, but they wouldn't necessarily know that that's me or my company. And <laughs> and I needed, and, and because I have this weird ethical principle of I don't put myself in front of my clients. So you're never going to see a <laughs> Facebook post from me. And this is my thing. I'm not saying other people who do this are wrong to do it because it, there's business reasons to be this way, but I've always had this weird policy that if I put out a cool video for a client and everyone likes it, I'm actually, you're not going to see it on my Facebook going, hey, look at what I did. Like, it's just not right. my deal. I don't like doing that. And okay. it's where I'm very different from a lot of people in this sphere, especially in motorsports, because a lot of PR marketing types love to do the look at me and look at where I am thing. Nothing wrong with it. It just doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me. And, um, and so I needed another vehicle to sort of say like, no, but I do stuff. And, and I never cared about being a person that was recognized. I cared about people knowing who I was so I could charge more. I mean, that's the reality of it. And so, uh, and, and that's what the podcast was always for me was that maybe a few more people would mm. hear my name. It would add some notoriety and, and notoriety equals value. Value equals I could actually pay, you know, get paid more. And that's really all I'm after. Right. Um, um, it, in retrospect, I'm glad I did it because the fan base, like I've actually grown to appreciate the fan response more than I thought I would. Um, because okay. if, if, if I'm being honest, I'm selfish enough to say most things I do, I do for me. Uh, but honestly, the, the crazy amount of fan response we've gotten, almost all of it positive, um, has kind of changed my tone because I like, this isn't just bullshit. I like, oh shit, I really do 
value what the fans think and fan appreciation. I never mm. thought I would be that guy, but no, I really care. Like, and that's a huge motivating factor. But anyway, so uh, back to metrics. Um, I guess I don't quite follow what you're asking in terms of like, do we follow metrics or do we care or what are you, where are you going with that? Well, yes, both of those. I, mean, okay. I guess because you, well, I guess especially in the context you have a relationship with Continental yeah. and um, and Acura. Yeah. You know, are they looking for numbers? Are they saying you need to hit numbers, or are you saying you know? Well, what it, are you doing with any? That yeah, kind of yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, uh, we're hitting these numbers. So we're not. So we're, we're very, very lucky that with Continental and with with um, uh, with Acura and Honda uh, that that they don't have specific numbers we have to hit. Um, okay. I would also say we're fortunate because we're, I think we're far exceeding what anybody would have expected. Um, so I think in that sense, we, we've been very lucky that we don't have to hit numbers because we, nice. we were way past what we, I think what anybody thought we were going to do. Um, but, uh, uh, but we're, because of that, we're very fortunate. Similarly, the checks aren't that big. You know what I mean? I mean, Continental again is very, <laughs> very lucky. We're very lucky that we, we're not losing any money on this deal, but we're not really making any either. Um, mm. And um, so, so yeah, so the, the trackable metrics that we use, of course, we get all the, uh, we use a specific service uh, that tracks all of our metrics for us. Um, uh, I, if, Jason, if you're listening, I think we can give this out, but we use a service called Blueberry. I'm not sure you're familiar with them. Oh yeah, I um, use that. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they have they have a really good set of metrics. Um, we we pay to get all the additional stuff that we can get. So everything from total downloads, unique downloads, geography, okay. rough demographics. Um, the one thing that we can't get, which would be nice, not even from a client, uh, not even from a sponsor fulfillment standpoint, but just from an observational standpoint, is how long do people stay on. Um, that's actually the one thing we can't mm. track very properly because that would tell us where we're losing people. Um, yeah. Okay. But but yeah. Right now we can track the success of each individual episode. We can track where that came from, what age group, what part of the country, what part of the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and we've been very very fortunate that all of it's actually pretty good. Um, <laughs> so now it's how do you translate that into sales um, for either additional sponsorship or creating additional content pieces that that have some profitability to them. Yeah, I'm a, I mean, you seem to be doing a pretty decent job with that on Twitter. At least I see, you know, people are yeah. uh, are actually buying tires. Well, so and so that's cool. and that's part two, um, and that's where we're very fortunate with our very specific audience. So we are one giant Continental ad, and we're very unashamed about our about our <laughs> loyalty to Continental Tire uh, because their tires are so good. By the way, uh, but um, uh, we, you know, it's not just every now and then. I mean, I think two to three times a week now there is a tweet put out by some new fan. Showing a picture oh, nice. of that new set of Continental tires that they put out, and that's tagging Continental. That's and and Continental is is smart enough to track all that as well, so that when they're putting their expense reports together, um, uh, and putting on their new budgets, they can see like, yeah, here's 300 tweets showing how this this you know these 300 people bought Continental tires on Twitter, and if they're doing that on Twitter, how many other people are doing it that aren't on Twitter? Um, mm. You know, and and honestly, uh, uh, yeah. that's the single biggest thing. So. If you can build into any piece of content, podcasts is, is our example, but if you can build any sort of engagement that actually works, like the the, the single mm. best metric you can have is the metric that you don't have to provide. You know what I'm saying? So like we're not we're not like because I can I can bullshit all kinds of data if I really wanted to, but I can't fake right. I can't fake 300 Twitter accounts. I guess I could, but I'm not talented enough for that, and I'm not putting in the time. Um, but uh, but but. You know the fact that the this number of organic tweets come out. Oh, I just fucking said organic. I promised myself I wouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> but that number of actual tweets coming out, un you know, unasked for, unmerited, just out there on their own, unsolicited. Mm. 
you know, that's the single biggest speaking tool we have, and there's no amount of data that we can provide that could that could match that, and that's a huge, huge part of it. Yeah, I can imagine. So as a business owner, sure. what is it like for you about, okay, I guess, let me take a step back and say, I do a free podcast, right. and I do it from my house, where it doesn't cost me anything. You son and of a bitch. I don't bitch. have to drive around the country. You son You're of a bitch. You're doing this. Yeah. For, you know, you've done this willingly for three seasons yeah. now. You've driven 30,000 miles around the country. Yeah, we we did the math. We have literally before. done the circumference of the earth. <laughs> so what's it like for you to run a free podcast and also be running a business at the same time? Oh, it sucks. It's <laughs> goddamn horrendous. Uh, I don't have a holiday. I literally lost a girlfriend over it. So, yeah, that's what it's like. Oh. Uh, no, it's fine. Um, it it should end it anyway. But, uh, no, it's tough um, because here's – I have a very, very strong philosophy um, about this about uh, because we knew we weren't going to make money. Um, here's what – and it, I'm very fortunate that it hasn't happened yet. But here's what I want to never, ever hear from a client, which is, oh, I know you're busy with your podcast. Oh, you know what I'm saying? Okay. And I never need and I can mm. and I certainly on my end can never use the podcast as an excuse because it's okay. known that it's not making money. Um, it's clearly just for me. Uh, and of course, Ryan, but you know what I mean? It's like it's a personal project. It's not a right. client project. Um, I have no problems telling a client if it merits it like, hey, can I've got some other client stuff going on. Can this wait a day? I have no problems doing that. I will never, mm. ever do that for the podcast because it's a personal project and everybody knows that. Um, so okay. in a weird way, and I think you understand what I mean, especially when we're on the road, because when we're on the road, we're very visible on social media. You know, it's mm. um, Ryan. Ryan is exceptionally good at social media, um, way stronger than I am. Um, and so every gas stop, every whatever, he's doing something that's fun and engaging. So and it, and it all gets traction. So as a result, there's no secret that we're out goofing around. And the perception <laughs> that we put out on social media, um, I don't want to say it's a lie, but the perception that we put out on social media is that this is nothing but fun and games. <laughs> and And that's obviously the perception we need to have out there because that's that's what makes it fun is that it seems like we're having fun. But if a client who's no, waiting on you to deliver a video sees you having fun, well, they're not appreciating that the same way that a fan might. You see what I'm saying? So, yes. so the road trip and the resulting post-production that we do on it for me is really, really tough just from a, an hour standpoint, because again, I almost have to work harder during that time so that a client doesn't feel neglected because now mm. they're looking for it. Um, so those five to six weeks of the road trip, it's, it's phone calls and emails throughout the car ride. Ryan does most of the driving because I'm literally on the phone and on my email almost the entirety oh, okay. of the trip. We get to a hotel room. Now I'm editing a video. I'm finishing up whatever graphic design thing. Like, yeah, it's, it's three, four in the morning, back up two hours later and on the road to the net to Sheboygan, Wisconsin. You know what I mean? It's, it's a, it's an exciting time. So it's really, and then we get home. And then it's now I've got to do the post-production and handle all the client right, yeah. work that I did manage to put off until I got home. Um, so literally from when – you know I left um, my home mid-September, I think the 14th or 15th for in 2017. Um, the road trip ended – I was home by Halloween, which was cool because I got to walk my dog in a costume. Um, so I was home by Halloween. <laughs> I took that night to walk my dog around, and then literally from November until the Daytona 24, two weeks ago, there wasn't a day, a weekend, with the exception of Christmas Day, that I wasn't doing something. Um, it was really, really brutal. And that's because you have to work that much harder when you're doing something that visible that you're not getting paid for because clients well, clients need to know they're not being ignored. Wow, so, that is crazy. Yeah, it's tough. That it's tough. Crazy. I mean, it's the job, but yeah, it's, it's just part of it. So. Yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway. That's and, and I know you've had to, I mean, I think it was for Scott Tucker, you were basically driving out to Pennsylvania to yep. go to your next client or your next guest, and then you had to drive all the way back to New York City and then drive out again. Oh, yeah. yeah. Let me let me tell you about Bedford, Pennsylvania. Um, so <laughs> have you ever heard of Bedford, Pennsylvania? I think I have, Oh, actually. okay. You're... Okay, because it's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and, and nothing against yeah. Pennsylvania, but like Bedford is somewhere between like Ohio and New York, and um, and <laughs> be- and to this day, I still believe we're actually floating in a river in Bedford, Pennsylvania. Because here's the weird thing: we've never seen Bedford, Pennsylvania in the daytime, except for leaving a hotel in the morning. <laughs> so if you're driving along the freeway through Pennsylvania on your way to New York, it's it's pitch black for a long time. You see nothing. <laughs> it's just it's just you're just driving down a road. And then out of nowhere, you know, you see the signs saying hotels, next exit or whatever, so you, and it's Bedford. And you pull off, and here's the weird thing about Bedford. There are five or six hotels along one row, and they're really nice. It looks like all of them were built in the last five years. Um, the facades are really done. Like we stay at, um, we stay at a, 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 I think it's a Hampton but it has like a waterfall okay. in front of it. It's like, what? Okay, oh, yeah, like it's like, geez. it's elaborately nice. Here's the kicker. There are no houses or any sort of uh, uh, residential areas in sight. I have never seen a house in Bedford, Pennsylvania. I've only, I'm like, where do these people live? I don't know, which is why we believe it's not real. Like this is like – you ever see the movie Silent Hill? Um, like I believe this is Silent Hill for us. Like uh, that the Bedford, Pennsylvania was like a turnoff that we ended up driving into a ditch for, and that was the moment we died. And now there's this just elaborate city of Bedford that we concocted in our head, and we're still floating in a river right now. Um, but uh, but anyway, point being, so Bedford, Pennsylvania, it's a city I've never heard of, a city that most people listening to this have probably <laughs> never heard about and probably wouldn't think about again. But we've been to Bedford like 10 times. Um, <laughs> so uh, we stopped in Bedford in the season two trip. I forget. Oh, we were going to New York to, to – oh, to, to see a guy who worked for a publishing company, and that was that. So we went from um, Ohio to uh, Pennsylvania to see Mario Andretti. We stopped halfway through in Bedford. Didn't think twice about it. Um, <laughs> and then um, and then we uh, – then we go on to Connecticut because there was a NASCAR driver that we met with there. And Scott Tucker, uh, who, again, if you watch the, the Netflix series Dirty Money Episode 2, it's all about Scott Tucker. But uh, Scott Tucker was a gentleman who was doing payday loans, uh, arguably through nefarious circumstances, um, and uh, over the years got more and more trouble. Anyway, he was uh, under... He was going through a criminal trial uh, for racketeering, basically, during the the week that we interviewed him. And um, so literally uh, – uh, sorry, I just got a text. Um, so literally uh, uh, he's mid-trial. It's like a Wednesday, and we know he's in trial, and he's been texting me back and forth each night. Oh, my God. And I'm like, I guess it's real. I guess he's going to meet with us. But I'm like, he, because like, and I didn't let on, like, dude, I know you're in a trial. You can say no. Because yeah, right. um, I'm like, if he's going to give the time, I'm not going to say no. So anyway, so we go to Connecticut, and everything from him was, was like a 530 in the morning text. We're like, okay. Um, and presumably because he's getting ready and going to trial. I don't know. Um, so we're getting sex, and and so all of a sudden, the morning of us kind of making the way out to New York, I don't hear from him. I'm like, huh, he knows we want to meet tomorrow. So we do our interview in Connecticut, and we don't hear from him. Like, do you want this? Like, uh, I don't know what the deal is. We don't hear from him. We don't hear from him. And we kind of make a rule to ourselves. All right, we're going to stay. We're going to eat dinner here in Connecticut because the trial was in New York and Manhattan. And I was like, we're going to stay and have dinner. If I don't hear from him by time dinner is over, we're headed back east. So we don't hear from him. 
we head back east, back to Bedford, Pennsylvania, and we <laughs> stay another night. And um, and I set my alarm because I'm like, you know what? Just in case I hear from him, I'm going to set my alarm. Like we got in at two in the morning. I'm like, I'm going to set my alarm just in case I hear from him. And uh, I set my alarm for 529 because usually I get my text at 530. Um, sure enough, 531, I get a text like, hey, we're going to meet tonight. I was like, goddamn right we are. <laughs> so Ryan and I get up and we drive back to New York where we just were from Bedford for the second time. We do our Scott Tucker interview, which which I thought went well. Um, and then we decided and then we had to get back to L.A. four days later. So now we have three days to go from from Manhattan to L.A. So literally we drive from Manhattan and do our another night in Bedford, Pennsylvania. So we stayed at that same hotel three nights in a row with three different like thousand mile trips in between. Um, and that's probably the fourth or fifth time now we've been. So we've been to Bedford, Pennsylvania a lot of times, which is why to this day I do not believe we're actually alive and that we're sitting in a river in Bedford. <laughs> well, and this has been a huge mistake. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> You're now a contributor. Yeah. <laughs> it is now state's evidence. Congratulations. <laughs> awesome. Thank that's you hey, so much. No such thing as bad promotion. We have evidence. Yeah. That's great. So I guess, you know, for folks who are not familiar with the podcast, if there was one episode – that you would say, hey, go give this one a listen. Which one would that be? Oh, fuck off. Uh, no, I, I, <laughs> God. That's, that's a tough one because the ones I enjoy are not necessarily the ones that – I mean, I enjoy all of them, but uh, the ones that I enjoy – I would say the, the Mario Andretti one, I think, uh, because Mario is he's – a, he's a name that everybody knows even if you're not a race fan. And I think his stories mm. – Mario Andretti's story I think is really, really cool, especially if you don't know it. If you're a Mario Andretti fan – that episode probably doesn't tell you anything you didn't already know. Um, okay. But if you're not a if you if you know the name Mario Andretti, but you don't really know anything about him, I think that episode is great. It's a two parter, um, so it is very long, um, but it goes all the way from him. You know, he is the quintessential American dream. Started as a mm. Italian immigrant from literally from a post war refugee camp, um, moved to the U.S. with very very little money, and then his his brother and started racing and somehow he's he's now Mario Andretti the you know a multi 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 millionaire and uh, and I so I think he's such a staple of what the American dream is that uh, it's hard for me to pass up something mm-hmm. somebody like that yeah I've uh, I haven't listened to that episode those two episodes yet I'm trying to savor it sure. and, you know for what it's worth Sean I don't want it to be a weekly podcast. I like that it comes out in a binge, and I try to, I try to like wean myself to make sure that I have enough podcasts nice. to make me through nice. the racing season. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I love what you're doing. Keep. Oh, doing thank you very much. Yeah, we're, I don't, I don't um, think we'll change um, the the road trip that you hear. I don't think that per se is going to change. We may, we might break it. It's just very hard to sustain a six week trip followed by another two months of post-production um, when you're running a business. So yeah. we might make it into okay, smaller nice. little trips. The question is, oh, okay. um, from a purely like, we, we, this has to start making financial sense to, to some extent or business sense at mm, least. Um, so sense. what do we yeah. do with the brand? Because the brand is actually doing something. And I don't know the answer to this, nor does Ryan. Um, but what do we do with the brand to take ourselves to that next level to, to have some more commercial viability mm. to it. So does that mean we have to put out more okay. dinners with racers? Not necessarily. Um, but what are the other content pieces? Mm. Because um, Ryan and I have a very similarly matched sense of humor. Um, I think there's some great, mm. there's some great racing podcasts and there's some great racing content that's out there already. Um, but, um, but so what, what's the area that, you know, that we can cover with our own sensibilities that other people aren't covering or video elements or, you know, what are the other things that we can do that are unique to us uh, that, that can 
you know, continue to put out content, but also I'm already strapped for time that isn't going to kill me or, right. or at least maybe something that we can find that's kind of underwritten that makes sense. So these are kind of the questions in the moving forward process we have to go through, especially when I have business partners like my, uh, Jason, who I keep mentioning, who aren't necessarily race fans. Um, they know that the importance of racing for okay. our business, but I'm the, of the four of us, I'm the only one that actually cares about racing. Um, so oh, okay. oh, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they understand the importance of gallivanting huh. around the country, but like at a certain point, it's not. It's got to make some business sense for all of us. So, Fair how enough. about you? Does this how how is this working out for you in terms of workload? You know, it's it's a sideline thing for me. Yeah. So you know, I mean, I thankfully I'm not in the office billions and billions of hours. Sure. Um, so I have this freedom. Um, you know, usually a lot of it I do on the weekends. Right. Um, but you know, it's like, you think, you know, I work home twice a week, right. so it was easier for me to say, okay, let's do it seven o'clock. Nice. I mean, I usually get home between six thirty and seven, okay. but you know, it gave me time to prep and, and relax and not have to worry about rushing. Yeah. Now the office in New York. Miss a train. Cause I take mass transit. Yeah. Are you, so, do you yeah, commute to Manhattan? I, I, um, um, I'm actually in Jersey city, which is right across the river from Manhattan. Uh, you work in the, the work is in Jersey city or the, I, yeah, I work in Jersey oh, city. Copy. Okay. It's literally across the Hudson yeah, river yeah, from yeah. Manhattan. Okay. Okay. From downtown. Nice. So, okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. So um, so yeah. For me, thankfully, you know, this is this is a fun. Yeah, thing, for so sure. I can schedule it. You know, and I've been always actually up until this year, I've always been. You know, okay, schedule the next one. Produce, produce now. And I'm now I've got a couple in the can. Good. So yeah. I can so now you've got to kind of take my time. I'm getting a little bit better with it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's. Um, I think it's part of it. So Funny. I guess. This, um, you know, you seem like a busy guy, but the last question I ask all my folks sure. is, um, you know, what do you do or what do you talk about when you're not talking about creating content or your business or your job or whatever? What do you, I know you have a, a Corgi. I do. What, else, what are your other interests? Uh, Corgi is a big interest of mine. Um, and literally, if you follow my Instagram, Sean Heckman, which, by the way, don't because I don't really pay much attention to it. Um, it's literally <laughs> nothing but like anti-glamour photos of me eating gas station food and uh, and then dog dog pictures because my Corgi is awesome. Far more awesome than me. Um, no, outside of... Um, Hobbies. So I'm a big, big believer in outside influence, um, particularly as it relates to motorsports. So, uh, um, you know, you know me from making content that's fairly unique in the motorsport world, and I would, mm. and I will argue to the death that it's it's that I have a lot of outside influence. Um, I love watching racing, okay. um, but if it's a weekend, I might have a NASCAR race on on Sunday. I might have an IndyCar race on, but I'm, I'm not going to, that's not all I'm going to absorb. I'm going to see movies. I'm going to go to stand up comedy. Um, I'm a, from a passive standpoint, I really like engaging with anything that I think is strange and fun. Um, so comedy <laughs> is a really, really big thing of mine. So I really try to bring that out. And like, I'll, I'll keep saying I'm a hack and it's because so much of what I do in racing is, I wouldn't say stolen, but a lot of what I do is kind of uh, inspired by stuff that I see outside of motorsport, particularly in the comedy world. I'm like, oh, that would be cool huh? if I then made that about racing an Audi, you know? Um, huh. and, and that's, that's I mean, I'm telling you, I'm that's a hack, cool. but it's just that, that my influences aren't, <laughs> aren't within racing, so it's maybe not as obvious, but uh, but it's 100% my deal. So yeah, no, uh, comedy, um, I uh, much like yourself, I, I do a little bit of sim racing. I The only... Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I'll say about it is I think the anger that I get for screwing up is very realistic. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, I, I, there, there's a weird divide in sim racing between people who think that like, this is the same as real racing and those who don't, I think I'd put myself in the, those who don't category. I think it's fun and let's just leave it at that. Um, mm. but, uh, but yeah, no, there's, um, 
there's a friend who lives in Germany that her and I do a lot of endurance racing together and, and um, oh, stuff cool. like that, which is really, really cool. Um, but uh, yeah, other than that, it's, it's time with my dog. It's taking in movies and, and stand up and uh, the Olympics are on right now. So I'm very excited about um, the uh, men's and women's singles events that are about to start. And uh, that's about that. Yeah, I, um, I'm not a big Olympics person, sure. but I hear they're, um, you know, what was it, a triple axel? Or the yes. American hit a triple axel? Mirai Nagasu from... Nancy Kerrigan, who was it? Mirai Nagasu, who literally lives like five miles from me. Uh, I shouldn't say she oh, lives. Nice. Her parents own a restaurant that's like literally five miles from where I'm at right now. Uh, Mirai Nagasu is... Uh, uh, probably the leading female that's going to skate i don't know how well she's going to do um by the time you're listening to this it's probably already happened so you can tell me but um <laughs> um men's and women's skating right now there are some folks out of russia and japan that are arguably in both the men's and women's categories stronger than the than the americans but uh, mariah nagasu in what's called the team event uh did land a triple axel which <laughs> is very very rare so um did you see the movie i Tanya? I have okay. not. It's actually very, very good. I love that movie. Okay. Um, but um, they make a big deal about the fact that Tanya Harding did a triple axel in competition. And that part of the storyline okay. happened in 1991. And it's now 27 years later. And we're still making a big deal about somebody laying in a triple axel. That's how rare it is um, that somebody does it. Huh, like, okay. I, can, I don't actually know the, 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 the actual statistic, but I can literally name, I think, two other occasions in the last 27 years where somebody's done a triple in competition. So, wow. yeah. okay. so it's impressive. So she's good. She's very good. Huh. Um, I don't know if she can repeat that in the uh, women's single events, but we'll see. Oh, it's good stuff. A little bit of ice skating well, in every piece. Sh- yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. My, um, my wife hometown uh donna weinbrecht who i think was a gold medal skier or something okay. like that was uh from there so, i mean I, that's that's as much as i know about the yeah, olympics all right so fair enough i see the sign when we go up to see her mom so beyond racing are you a sports guy at all or just racing <laughs> just racing. Yeah, no i understand you know, that I, it's a, that's you know, weird I, about racing it's for some reason there there are i find that there's two divides in racing um or three divides i should say there are car people who happen to love racing um, I would not put myself in that category. I don't think I'm a car guy. Um, there are people who okay. just love sports and car racing as part of that. Um, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily put myself in that category, but I would say I'm more towards that. And then there's people who only like racing and to some extent almost resent both other sides. Um, huh. like, like there are people who are like, no, I'm racing and I don't like cars or, uh, or I like racing and I don't care about football. Boo football. I'm like, ah, come on, knock that off. You're being an <laughs> asshole. Um, like I, I genuinely enjoy other sports. Do I follow them as closely as I do skating or racing? Probably not, but, uh, but I, I'm okay. definitely in the category of people who appreciate, I, like the Super Bowl was last weekend. I thought that was an excellent game. I mean, things like that I, I will absolutely okay. pay attention to, but more because the sportsmanship and the strategic side of it. Yeah, as I've gotten older, I've kind of whittled down, and uh, you know, I'm, I mean, the last thing I think to go, I still watch. Well, I don't really watch football. Uh, sorry. Anyhow, um, <laughs> I stopped watching football last, I sure. guess, and it's because of the CTE thing and the whole public-private. Like, it feels like uh, owners are taking cities hostage to say, if you don't get yep. a give us a new stadium that we're going to move and stuff. I'm like, you know what? I've and you know, and I've just had enough of it. So yeah, it's... I've realized that I love racing and I've got limited time to watch stuff. So, so I'm going to yep. focus on IndyCar. I don't really watch NASCAR. Sure. I occasionally watch, you know, F1 and you know IMSA when I can. I go to Lime Rock every oh, cool. year because okay. it's a great drive and a great course. Cool. Um, so yeah, that's. Um, well, are you going to check out the IMSA Lime Rock uh, Northeast Grand Prix in July? Oh yeah, you better. Oh my God, it's. It's it's hot as hell. Are you going to be there? Of course I'll be there. I th- actually, I don't know that I'm going to wow. be there. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be there. 
Uh, I'm probably I have to. Worst part about that is it's hot as hell. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. I don't. I don't. Well, that and there's no Wi-Fi or no signal. Yeah, yeah. You guys, I don't know what's up with you people in Connecticut, but uh, uh, (laughs) but that is the thing. Every time we go to that track, because like somebody like me, my job actually depends on having access to my cell phone. And the the paddock area at Lime Rock, uh, which is in Lakeville, Connecticut, which is this little place that's kind of on the very northern side of Connecticut, right before you get to Massachusetts, and. it's it's like it's the the paddock is in like this little bowl underneath the hillside, and somehow all of that <laughs> just compounds into the fact that you just never get data signal, you never get Wi-Fi, and and it is a struggle to do a job like mine when you're there. But it's still cool. The fans there are very loyal. Imagine. Yeah, yeah, it's always a great crowd. It's, yeah. it's a great place to see a race. It's just you know we bring beers, we sit underneath one of the big trees on the front street, and uh, just hang out and watch cars. Cool. Go. Is that awesome. is that your spot? It's like the hill behind turn one. Yeah, we've been trying to, you know, move around a little bit more because you don't see that much of the race there. Yeah. You see cars go by in the front straight, yeah. and thankfully you have the shade because that's limited yeah. in Lime Rock. But, you know, in the past couple of years, I've been walking around more and more. Um, I love going up with watching from the chicane sure. of the uphill yep, chicane. Yep. Um, well, that's also so, – it's yeah, that's, you're, you're lucky with Lime Rock because it is – and I don't say this in a bad way, but it's one of the – it's the smallest track we go to. Um, from mm. So from a walking standpoint, you can see everything within yeah. a very reasonable distance. You go to uh, – Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, uh, a track called Road America. It's four miles long. Yeah, that track is ridiculous. I've walked that yeah, track. Yeah, so you know. Insane. I've been there twice. Okay. Yes. It's a cool track, yes. but it is a long way. I've been very oh fortunate God. to always have a golf cart. So. <laughs> anyway. Well, Sean, on that note, thank you so much for your Absolutely. time. Thank, thank you. you for insight. This is really, really cool. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, you know, is there some place that where we you know if we wanted to reach out to you or if we wanted to follow you, where can we find out find more about you online? Sure. Uh, so the best way to to get in touch with me or or follow me personally would be probably Twitter and to a lesser extent Instagram um, at Sean Heckman at both at Twitter I believe it's just at Sean Heckman I think my Instagram is Sean dot Heckman. Um, you can follow me on Facebook as well. Uh, I would absolutely say uh, if you enjoy this, the thing to absolutely follow is uh, Dinner with Racers and that account because I would actually say that's <laughs> we actually between Ryan, myself, uh, Natasha, who helps us out, um, that is a more kept – like I'm so busy working on client stuff, I don't do a good job of promoting myself. That's why things like what I'm doing right now are so rare. Um, mm. It's not that I don't want to do it. I just It's just not a priority to me. Um, I'd rather edit than think about my next awesome tweet. And so, uh, so, <laughs> so following at DWR show on uh, Twitter is good or Dinner with Racers on Facebook. Um, those are great places to kind of see the, the next iteration of whatever it is that we're doing with the podcast, um, as well as my uh, producing partner, uh, Ryan Eversley, who is at Ryan Eversley on Twitter and at Eversley on Instagram, as well as Ryan Eversley on Facebook. Um, he's a very engaging race driver, uh, and he's uh, he's way more on this stuff than I am. And so uh, chances are whatever he's doing, I'm somewhere close by. by his, his presence is amazing. Yeah, he's very, very good with that stuff. I, I, his social media is just amazing. I can't take that away from him as much as I'd like to. <laughs> All right, Sean, thanks again, everyone. Thank you. Um, now go out there and create some better content. Content!